0: Hey Hawk family and community and those of you who are new welcome I hope that you consider to subscribe and join into our Hawk family my name is coach Drexel and I have dedicated my life to helping kids get into sports and dominate both in life and baseball and today I'm going to be having a special guest to talk about the baseball mindset on the field especially on the mound and I'm excited because I'm going to be learning with you guys like I always say I am not better than you I'm learning with you so let's dominate life and baseball together today with Chad. Chad you there? I'm here. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I want to go ahead and have you introduce yourself and, and share a little bit of why these people should be listening to you.
1: Oh, man. Well, for one, I can't tell you one good reason why anybody should be listening to you. But hey, since I'm here, I'll give you a couple little tidbits that might perk people's ears and might maybe make them want to listen. Um, first off, I'm just like everybody else. I grew up in a small town in Texas. Um, A couple thousand people. You know, I I didn't go to a big school. I went to an NAI school. um, And from there in Oklahoma, it was in Oklahoma, in Shawnee. So I went to Oklahoma Baptist. And you might not have heard of that. And neither did I before I went there. So I went to Oklahoma Baptist from a small town in Texas. And from there, I signed a contract um, with the the Boston Red Sox. It was a free agent contract. I played with them for the next five years. And then I, I bounced around independent baseball in Fargo. And then in Gary, Indiana, Um, I had Tommy John from there. And then kind of from there, that was the midway point of when I, that was when I started coaching, you know, I kind of came back from Tommy John. I started coaching independent professional baseball as well as, as well as college. And I jumped into two years of high school baseball where I coached high school um, along with independent in the summers before I got my first um affiliated job with the Miami Marlins. When I was with the Marlins, I, I got to coach the short season level where I where I received the,
0: mm, yeah. the
1: new draft picks. So like the draft kids would come in and I would take short season. And then for three years with the Marlins, I was the, the rehab pitching coach. So anybody in the system who got injured, specifically pitchers, I had the I had the position players as well, but really the main you know main point of the job was rebuilding arms and making sure that I had consistent eyes on them to help them rebuild back from surgery and the biggest thing from surgery it's not necessarily the the physical build back it is it is the mental reconstruction of an athlete um over the course of 12 to 14 months so so my career I played I've been in ba- professional baseball now for 16 years. I kind of did the college, I did the high school, but I've been in professional baseball for for a while now and um all on the pitching side. I'm excited to be here and I appreciate you having me on.
0: Absolutely. I I love to ask you like what what was that like for you because I'm sure, you know, you're one of what is that uh 10% of individuals in the world who started baseball to actually get to play at a high level it it's you're crazy. like three three four percent of the people
1: if you look at the numbers like that when you break it down it really is crazy and I, I think at the time um and like I said the town that I grew up in was very small and so really even thinking that there was kind of an inkling to play baseball you know on a bigger spectrum it it really didn't cloud my mind as to the odds of you know how hard it was going to be because it's just one day at a time you know it doesn't it's not like it gets any it doesn't get any harder the more the days pass if you're not putting in that (laughs) work it's kind of like yeah it's hard but is that going to stop you from doing what you need to do or is it you know is it going to kind of is it going to paralyze you and make you look at it and say well the numbers are so great that i'm never going to make it so it's not worth me pursuing that that was never something that kind of uh that never seeped into my mind
0: I like that. I like it yeah that that really is a mindset though too, because at the end of the day we don't even know if we 're going to wake up tomorrow.
1: no, we don't you know we so don't. we, we, we
0: like, got to do it today
1: well, say with that point it it's kind of like you, you know I say this to some people sometimes, and this is really deep, and this is kind of of a morbid thought, but it kind of gives you the mindset um of where I'm coming from and the way that you go about things. It's I believe that you come into this world by yourself as a baby, you come in this world by yourself. And I also believe when you die, you're going to die by yourself. And, and when you do die by yourself, you're going to die believing in what you chose to believe in, right? Not what other people forced you to believe in, but you yourself, you're going to die believing what you chose to believe in. And I'm completely content and happy with what I believe in. And I hope that everybody else is too. I can't. I think that's kind of the point. And I think that's, I like the positivity that you put off because it's always at the end of the day, am I leaving the world and leaving everybody else that I've talked to better than when I entered their, their day? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, that's one of the biggest things that I, I talk about, even in our social media platform, is you gotta if you leave a conversation and the conversation didn't leave the person in a better situation or thought or feeling than when you approach and walked into it, then you need to change some stuff. You gotta you gotta really uh, change your perspective, start looking into different things because at the end of the day, you want to leave people better than you got to them. You want to leave places better than where you were were there and then you also want to leave you want to leave this world better than you came into it sure so i I like that i really like the way that you're you're approaching um, the aspect of it wasn't really about the you know the outline or the um the you know the one percent rule of every. player not going to be able to play in a MLB. You didn't even think about that. You were like, I'm just going to take it one day at a time and work at it and get better each and every day. And that's all I can do. Mm -hmm. I like it. Well, I I would love to dive into some of the questions that uh, I have for you. Uh, Hopefully we can make an impact on some of the guys and uh, people who are listening in. Again, I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen into our podcast for Hawk Baseball. And uh, the first question I have for you is, what, you know, you're, you're a mindset coach, and you, you obviously do the physical aspect of it, too. But like you said, you know, you focus more on the mindset aspect when you got guys coming around to get from the injuries. So when it comes to mindset going onto the, the field, what what are some of the misconceptions or um, misleading thought process that people say or do when it comes to getting onto the mound as a pitcher?
1: Sure. And I, I think I'll go a little bit um, broader, broader stroke than that. And I'll even say that. How about how about the saying that the game is 90 percent mental and 10 percent, 10 percent physical? I mean, that I think that is misleading. I think that is that is something that's a mis It's a misrepresentation of what the mental game is. And I want to quantify it for you. i Because I do believe the game is 90% mental and 10% physical, but I think that it's said so much that it gets watered down and people just hear it and they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. And everybody believes it, but nobody really can put a finger on as to why. And nobody's going to sit there and tell you that they actually work 90% on the mental game compared to 10% on the physical game because that's not true. You can look at social media that people are working 90% on the physical game and just hoping – that somehow they're going to, if somebody answered, ask them the question, Hey, are you, is the game 90% mental, 10% physical? They're going to go, yeah. You know, they're going to fist pump. And say, yeah. Well, how much are you working on it? Uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll let me quantify it for you and, and kind of put it this way. And I think this, this makes guys break it down a little bit easier and, and help some kind of grasp where to start. And that's kind of where I'd like to start. And, And I'll ask you a few questions, and we'll do some simple math, and I think this will help everybody um, piece it together. But how long is the average Major League Baseball game? Three hours. Three hours, right. Right on point. 180 minutes. Okay, so how long is the ball actually in play? Where somebody is doing something physical, where the ball is moving, it's in play. It's either been hit, it's been thrown, somebody's chasing it. How long is the ball active in a three-hour game.
0: Maybe, like, literally 10 minutes of it?
1: It's, it's right between 15 to 20 minutes. Um, oh, my God. So, depending on the game. So, if, if I average out 15 to 20 minutes, it's, that's 18 minutes. So, over the course of 180 minutes, which is an average big league game, the ball is only active 18 minutes, which is 10% of the time. So, if you look at the course of a game and say that the ball – is only moving ten percent of the time. What's going on the other ninety percent of the time? It, it it's what you're thinking about. I, I want to take it one step further, and I want to ask you: If you're a pitcher, how long does it take you? Let's round up. How long does it take you to throw a pitch? Let's say you're in the windup.
0: Oh, it it like less than a second.
1: And less than a second. Yeah, we can. Let's round up to two seconds because you say you're in the two full seconds. Wind
0: yeah. Up, wind oh, up, you, like okay, okay.
1: Yeah, so let's go two seconds, and let's say you throw 100 pitches. So you're – hopefully at 100 pitches, you probably pitch into, what, sixth, seventh inning, maybe longer if you're cruising. Um, And by the sixth, seventh inning, you're, what, two hours in? Yep. So you've been pitching for two hours. You threw 100 pitches. It took you two seconds to throw each pitch. That is 200 seconds, which is, what, a little over three minutes, three minutes and 20 seconds?
0: Man, you're breaking it down and it's scaring me.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, so think about (laughs) it.
0: No, it's like crazy. I never thought of it that way, though.
1: Well, think about it. Think about, okay, so three minutes and 20 seconds of physical work that's going to go on your stat line. That's going to be how you're graded and judged. Now, for you, that start, it typically it took you five days of preparation, you know, four days of preparation in order to get ready just to go and work For three minutes over the course of two hours, that's going to determine for the next five days what goes on your stat line. So if you talk about how important the mental game is, yes, it is very important. Because in the course of that two hours, when you threw 100 pitches, we know you only worked a little over three minutes. But what were you thinking about that other, what, hour and 57 minutes? Because that's what's going to determine the quality of those pitches in between. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that I never thought of it that way, and that makes so much sense even more now because I, I always did believe that it was it was more mental because at the end of the day, if you physically put prepare yourself, then when it comes to the game, you're gonna give a hundred percent and you're gonna do the best that you can, and there's nothing else you can do about that. But the mental side, I always believe, like mentally, you know, if you make an error, that that can mentally destroy the rest of your game because you you could be stuck in a rut thinking about the last play when you should be focusing on the moment and the p- pitch that's about to happen right now. Exactly. And so so I, well, I can see how, like, but when when you broke it down to literally it's three minutes of me physically doing something in mm-hmm. a course of a two-hour time span of me playing in a six or seven inning, that now that makes it even more like, uh, dude, hello, like you got an hour and 57 minutes in your head. Mm-hmm. Sure. Granted, you can probably take away another 15 minutes or maybe, sorry, like more like five minutes, 10 minutes to read the sign to know what piss you're going to do. But I mean that mentally you're not doing anything there after you get the call, maybe you start thinking, you're like, why are we doing this call? Or, okay, we're doing this call. And then you know what you need to do to make the play. But then that's your, in your head, like now you're in your head and you're talking to yourself. So I think that's, oh man, that breaks it down to like literally just understanding that it's three minutes. You, you're you physically only doing something for three minutes.
1: Well, it'll, wow. it'll make it sick if you look at it from a hitter's point of view, because look at a hitter. And let's say that a hitter gets four at-bats in one game. Now, how many times is a hitter, at, on average, going to swing the bat in one in one AB? Two? Two, maybe. Yeah, two maybe. And it takes you what? Let's, let's round up to a second to swing the bat. So let's say yeah. a guy has four ABs. He swings the bat two times in each AB, so he's got eight swings. It took him a second to swing the bat, which is – A pretty slow stick. So, eight seconds over the course of a whole entire game that's going to go on his stat line of physical work. Physical work.
0: But then you look at the aspect of them training all year round to physically, mechanically become great hitter and then making contact with the ball and everything else. That is insane to think about. You literally have a whole week of training just to be able to swing – eight times in a game and you have eight seconds. Well, I mean, probably less than that for a majority of people, but just the idea of the fact that you're there for two, three hours and you're literally only playing on a a second as a hitter and then you're infield, you're even physically playing even less than that because not, not every player on the field gets a hit to them. Oh so that is even more scary to even think about too. You know the left left fielder yeah. like I uh, I mean sorry the right fielder is like hi I'm over here I don't know if you guys knew that <laughs> like wow like yeah. just, that's just crazy to think about. That's I am good. absolutely puzzled right now. Oh my well, god.
1: We'll keep will keep piecing it together so what that what that does show us is that yes Thinking is important. I mean, it, it. there's no way around that thinking is important, but there's a big difference between thinking and thoughts. That, oh,
0: okay. Let's break that down.
1: That's one of the main points I kind of want to talk about. Thinking is an action. Thinking is something that you do. Thoughts happen to you i mean there's thoughts that happen all day long there's we get to pick and choose the thoughts that we want to to listen to it's kind of like think about it like this too is i compare thinking to to eating now nobody forces you to put the food in your mouth chew it up and swallow but whatever you put in your mouth chew up and swallow is going to be a part of you that that is your sustenance so I, I don't sit around eating candy bars and potato chips and drinking Coke all day and expect me to have a six-pack and be, and be built. It doesn't work like that. So I can't sit around, listen to bad music, you know, hang out with bad people, watch, watch stupid TV, and expect to have good, clear thoughts. Um, it's not going to happen. It, it takes action. It's just like eating a healthy meal. It takes more discipline than it does to sit down and eat a candy bar. They're both the same thing. You're both eating something but it doesn't mean that you're doing something good for yourself. So when when I think about the difference between thinking and thoughts, it's if you don't choose, if you don't choose the action of thinking what it is that you want to implement, then thoughts are just going to randomly happen and that's what you're going to roll with. It's it's kind of like if you're 2-0 against a three-hole hitter and there's runners at second and third, there's a couple different thoughts that can pop, pop in, in your head. You could be like Oh my gosh, i got to face this guy. Don't leave it in the middle. It's going to get hit hard. It's going to crush in the gaps. I can't beat this guy. Those are thoughts. Now, if you want to think, it doesn't matter the situation because you know your job is just to throw a quality pitch low in the zone. So if you can step off, flush the thoughts, tell them to shut up, and then implement (laughs) You know what I mean? Tell the little man or tell the devil on your shoulder, tell him to
0: shut up. So using your example, I I would love to – to you know break down down a little bit so if i'm thinking like in my head i'm like okay so we got a man on second and third and i have a three-o count if anything i want to keep it to the inside so he pulls it to the left so that way we keep the second basement if not that is the grounder so then we hold the people on base and then throw it the first and so then it's like is that a thought or is that thinking and trying to execute something ahead that would be think
1: if you're if you are implementing in an approach to your plan that is thinking. If you are just throwing a pitch, scared of what's going to happen, I would say that would be that would be common. a
0: thought. So thinking about like, dude, I hope he doesn't hit it to the right side because if he hits it to the right side, they're going to score two runs right now, and we're gonna we're gonna be losing.
1: That would be more would, like okay. a thought. Yeah. What about? Okay. Think about it like this. This this might make it easier. I like to say, all my pitchers, is that, look, the ball is neutral, right? And the ball, the baseball in it, itself, it is not for you and is not for the hitter. If you're on the mound holding it, it is not for you and it's not for the hitter. Like You don't know what's going to happen when you throw it. But the bonus is, as a pitcher, you get to start with it in your hand. This ball is neutral. It's not for anybody, but you get to start with it and you get to choose what to load into that baseball when you throw it now if i load into that baseball oh don't leave this pitch up don't don't miss over the middle don't leave it up he's going to crush it if that's what i load into that pitch when i throw it i'm not very i'm not giving myself a very good opportunity to execute something in a positive way but if in the same instant in the same pitch i load in the thought of hey Execute this pitch, good quality pitch, low in the zone. If that's my focus and that's my intent, I'm going to give myself a better opportunity to do that because I'm loading the ball with more of a with more of a positive intent than a scared intent. If that makes sense.
0: Yes. And then what about the aspect of yeah, great. You you were um, thinking about the execution. You were thinking about the plan, and then you do it, and it still does not work out for you. Let's say that the guy still ends up hitting it to the gap and they scored a the two runs. What is what is the uh, approach and way can a pitcher, including myself, can kind of navigate and get out of a situation where we start to think so much about the fact that they just scored two runs? So this is
1: after I give up damage.
0: Yeah, I gave up damage.
1: Okay, I would, I, I would assess – the situation, if I give up damage, I give up runs. Obviously, right there, this is the point where I'm out there on the mound by myself, right? I'm, I'm out there on the island. It's a desert island. I'm out there by myself. I just gave up runs. Now, it, depending on the situation of the game, I'm still the one who has to dictate that I'm attacking. Now, if I give up damage, I'm still going to come back in, and I. this is the point where I really mentally have to get locked back in. I gave up my runs. I got to keep my team close. So the next thing I do is I got to sit there and pump a strike. I got to find a way to be able to get back in and swing the momentum back. I can I can slow the game down myself. I can step off. I can reset. There's a lot of things I could do mentally. The worst thing I could do is to give up knowing that I gave up runs. It, you're going to give up runs. It, period. As a pitcher, if you're going to continue to pitch, you're going to give up hits. You're going to give up runs. It's being able to self- evaluate why and understand how you can stop the bleeding and let everybody else help you get out of there. So your job is to just to throw quality strikes. If you get outs and you get ground balls, you get punch outs, it's all a bonus. You have one job is to throw this pitch to your best, best ability. If you're giving up runs, that's it. It is what it is. As long as you're not walking them in. And if you're, I would say self-evaluate your execution. If you're giving up balls in the gap, and you're thinking that your execution is down, then I would go back and look at your execution to make sure that you're actually focused on things and that you see things the way that they need to be seen. If I'm giving up a lot of balls in the air, there's nothing in my execution that says there's balls down, especially if I go back and look at the video. Um, Yeah. But as far as giving up damage in the game, there's no way that I'm going to get negative on myself, and that turned into me going 2-0 on this batter, getting mad, trying to throw it past him, I lose my delivery. I start elevating pitches in the zone. And then the onslaught of hits continues just because I'm unable to get over the fact that I gave up the first run. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And then here's the question I have. It made me more of the coaches side. I'm going mm-hmm. st- to put on the coaching cap on right now. Um, so I'm the coach and, you know, the player gets to just gave up damage. And then, you know, for me – one of the things that you know bothered me as a pitcher when I was on the mound was having a coach say, "Just throw strikes, kid." Um, when it comes to that, is that good or bad advice, or is there a different way that we can say that? <laughs> well,
1: I would say that when I every anytime I hear that, I completely mark that person off as knowing anything of what they're talking about because if there's any. If there's any part of a coach thinking that he has one of his pitchers out there on the mound that is not trying to throw strikes, then that player would be an idiot. or That coach would be an idiot for telling him to throw strikes. Because if I was the pitcher, I'd look back at me and say, well, what do you think I'm doing out here? Trying to walk him? So (laughs) it's one of those things you know, from the coaching standpoint, I, I hear it. Trust me, I hear it every single year in professional baseball. And I'll look at, I'll look at people, I'm like, uh, what are you talking about? Like, what do you think he's out there trying to do? So on the coaching side of it, especially when somebody gives up damage, I like to go out. You know, I like to go out and take visits. Um, my visits are always light. I want to keep it light because really after a big hit, or a couple runs score. I want to go out. I want to personally slow the momentum down and I want to make sure that the pitcher doesn't get emotional. I want to make sure that he doesn't get emotional and that the next two or three batters, they don't gain momentum and it doesn't turn bad for him. So I actually want to go out and I want to make sure that when we did give up the hit was, was it the right pitch that we just didn't execute or were, were we on the wrong page? So that way you can stop the flow you can kind of get a good grasp at where he's at mentally. You can let him take a breath. And then I usually tell him the joke. Most of the time, my big one is I'll go out to a guy. I'm like, hey, man, you know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but uh, this game's on TV, and uh, you've been out here pitching with your pants unzipped zip for about 10 minutes. So I just want to know how long it's going to take you to figure out that you you know, your sliders are hanging out of your, your pants. <laughs> you know, most times." <laughs> Then guys will freak out and they'll look down and they'll start laughing. I'm like, just just relax. So it, it most times just taking them out of the element of, of making it personal. It's not personal when you're on the mound.
0: That's so yeah. I try
1: to get the point. It's look when you're facing another hitter, it's not personal. The only one who makes it personal is you. You're facing you're facing a certain type of swing. You're facing a certain type of stance. You're not facing a person. Now, it might be where and I faced, you know, certain guys in my career that owned me. But you might see a certain guy's like, oh, this guy owns me. But it, it might be because your stuff as a pitcher and your slot and the way that you throw your pitches in tunnel feeds right in to his bat path. And so he's the type of guy that he hits, and, you know. So you would have to focus on a different part of execution in the zone in order to get him out. It, it happens like that a lot. And I see pitchers make those at-bats personal, and then their emotions get to them, and now they're not, even, they're not even able to compete the way they need to compete because they're trying to pitch to a certain batter. It's like, look, there's no batter you have to face. They always have to face you. The, the batter has to face you. You don't have to face him. So that's just a little flipping mindset that I, I kind of like to keep on most of my guys.
0: I like that. I really like that. And the other thing, too, is that I've said it in the past in a, a video that I did about the strike zone and one of the things that I said and I'd love to get your point of view if you agree disagree or have a different perspective on it but I was uh demonstrating the fact like on defense in a football game right defensive players do not just let the person with the ball run yards and then try to chase after them they don't do that What do they do? They try to get them in the negative yard. They try to get them backwards. They try to attack them before they get in the yard. I don't know why, but in my head, I have so many coaches have said it, where they're just like, throw strikes, let them hit the ball, and let them put the ball into play. And for me, I'm like, "Uh, Coach, I'm the pitcher. Like My goal isn't to let the hitter hit the ball. Like Why am I even on the mound then? Like there's no point in me being on the mound if we're just going to let him hit the ball. It's defense. We're defense. Baseball is one of the few sports that has defense with the ball. And as a pitcher, the mindset shouldn't be, in my opinion, and I love to get your perspective. I, I know that it's not the only way or the right way, but I believe that you are the pitcher. Your focus is to be dominant and to execute your pitches to the best of your ability so that you can strike them out so that they don't put the ball into play. And if they do, then great. You do have defense behind you and you can depend on them. Mm-hmm. What is your thought? I would, I would say that
1: my, my thing with, with pitching is, you know, a couple things with the strike zone. For one, I, the strike zone is not real. I, I, I believe it's an illusion. Uh, if you look at, And I'm talking about strictly the box, the box people see on TV. I think they think that that's some type of real structure. (laughs) Um, It's not real. There's pitches thrown in that, and I looked. I think I put a stat on my Instagram a while back. It was like over thirty thousand pitches in one season were missed. You know, it was an average of like two point six an inning, and and this was at the professional level. And it's like the strike zone itself, fellas, is is not real. It is, it is just the point mentally that you have to attack and go through where he could possibly hit it. it, it, is it does that make sense? So, yeah. So it's not like when my job is pitching, you know, I, I have to get in that zone, obviously. And I'm not going to shy – I'm not shying from contact. I want to embrace contact, meaning I don't want to throw every single pitch of mine where – Yes, it, ideally in an ideal world, I'm striking out every single batter. But with all the other, you know, instances as far as I can't control the strike zone, I can't control check swing calls, I can't control close pitches that weren't called, I can't control all this other stuff. So what I can do is is work the count. I don't. I think working the count and understanding where I am in the count helps. Pitchers be able to to get longer into games to pitch more successfully. Now, what I mean is, if if I want to strike somebody out, then obviously I have to get two strikes, and I'm going to chase. There's only two counts where I'm going to tell my pitchers, I want you chasing the punch out right here. That's O2, and that's one two. If I got to one two from one one, not O2, bouncing a curveball trying to punch him out and then trying to do it again. So because. And in my philosophy, too, especially for starters, is after I go, you know, three, four pitches, I've shown him all this other stuff. The chance of me striking him out starts to dwindle down. And if I do keep hunting the punch out, I'm not executing the best quality of command pitches in order to get him to be able to put the ball in play weekly. So, yes, I would like to strike out every single batter. And that would be the way that I build it. But if I fall behind in the count or the count goes even – and I'm throwing five or six pitches, and I'm still trying to strike him out. I'm I'm more than likely working against myself rather than okay, this batter's wasting my time. <laughs> Stop wasting my time. Put the ball in play weekly. Let me get a ground ball. Get me get a fly ball. Move on. That way, I can set up my next at bat and work into a count where I can get a punch out. So, I don't know if that answers any of the questions.
0: <laughs> I, I it, it does because what you're basically saying is, yeah, you don't want to have the mindset of necessarily oh just let every batter hit the ball but you do want to approach it to where you're uh, taking it situational you're saying hey you know what this is where I'm at and this is what I got to do for the moment and this is how I'm going to execute the pitch so that I can get out of the situation I'm in in the best of my ability so I I I get what you're saying and I think that's a that's a different perspective and I like it I think that I will need to change my perspective on that because for me, I was always uh, thinking, I want to track them out and I'm going to execute my pitches the best of my ability. So now I'm going to I would change it to age. where I'm going to say, Hey, I want to track them out. I'm going to execute my pitches and my ability. And I have to acknowledge where am I at in the situation of the at bat.
1: Yeah. And the count, I was control the count. Well, if you're saying I do not use pitch to contact, no. If I'm going to use that term, I'm going to say, force contact you're forcing him to swing the bat if he doesn't swing the bat he's going to go sit down that would be the difference in the mindset because if you say pitch to contact it sounds passive right it's like pitch to contact just throw it over the plate and let him hit it (laughs) if i say force contact that means throw the ball in the zone he's not going to hit it and if he doesn't swing it's going to be a call strike and he's going to go he's going to go sit down anyway so attack him don't don't try and throw pitches where, where he's going to get up there and just hack and hit the ball. No. Force contact, don't pitch to it.
0: So still attack him. That's the, that's the mindset. Still making sure that you're attacking the strike zone and just making sure that regardless of if he hits it or not, you attack the strike zone to where, hey, it crossed over the flight and that's a strike. That's a guaranteed strike. And if he doesn't swing, he's screwed. And if he does, then, hey, I did my job
1: i did my job there's two because there's two different guys I, I like to talk about when i say force contact now and and once i say these two types of guys you're you're going to know the difference in the two but i'm talking about a thrower and a pitcher now you got a guy who throws hard and then you got a pitcher who knows how to pitch now let's say that if I'm a thrower, there's a lot of throwers. There's a lot of guys that don't really necessarily know how to pitch, and I'm talking about at an elite level. They know how to throw, and they, they know a delivery, and they got maybe some velo or stuff. But if I'm a thrower, I want to embrace contact, and I want to throw to beat the bat in the zone. If I'm a pitcher, I'm pitching to make pitches to avoid where his bat is in the zone does that make sense on the difference those two
0: because like what you're saying is you know there are players and i've seen it too and i agree with you there are two types of players that i well i would say three uh, even um one player is a player that just can gas it like they just got bbs and they can like gas it in there but they don't necessarily have any strategic. strategy to it they kind of just go with what the coach says the catcher says and then you got the second guy who's more uh technical they have a little bit better understanding of how to work the count how to work the strike zone how to really uh force the batter but they don't they might not necessarily have the below but they know how to work the strike zone and be a pitcher then the last one that i've seen is where they just don't care as long as they pitch and then uh hitters hit it great they don't care and then they don't necessarily have the fastest pitches they don't have all the junk or anything like that they're just kind of out there having fun so I've seen those three types of pitchers Mm -hmm. is that is that a little bit um on top of what you're saying or were you saying something else
1: no I, I would say um it's pretty much on point there I think there's different ways for those types of pitchers to attack the zone if I'm a thrower uh, then I'm not going to try and be fine and pick at the edges. I'm going to attack the bat, the barrel. If, if I'm not a pitcher, I'm not going to – if I'm a pitcher then I know that I don't have t- – that I have to set up my stuff, that I have to work the edges, then I'm going to work those edges. I'm not going to throw to the barrel like a thrower should. I'm going to pitch to where his bat is not. The other guys, the creative guys we have fun, I would say for them, because I work with a lot of those types of guys too, especially, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised at higher levels, is I take away the count and I help give them like combos of how to work their stuff. You, you know, we're going to say, say I'm going to work the first three batters. I'll give them a script. I'll give them a script for the first four pitches for the first three batters of every inning. So say the first batter, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, you're going to throw hard, soft, soft, hard. The second batter, you're going to go soft, hard, hard, soft. And then the third batter, you're going to alternate. You're either going to start soft, hard, soft, hard, or you're going to go hard, soft, hard, soft. Now, I'm not going to tell you where to throw the hard. Obviously, it's a fastball, but I'm not going to tell you whether to go in, out, up, or down. And when you throw soft, I'm not going to tell you whether I want you to throw your curveball, change up, or where to throw it, because that's the freedom I'm going to give you. But I do give them a small script where it's like, okay, hard, hard, toss off hard. So I'm telling you to throw a fastball, and then I want two off speed, and then another fastball. So they get to be creative on how they build their script, and then they get to see what pitches work off each other. So they're not necessarily throwing specific spots in the zone to a hitter. They're kind of working creatively on their own to see how well they can combo their pitches and match up their stuff
0: that that's awesome and that kind of segues perfectly to the next question which is you know i have two questions for you from my hawk fam guys if you have not already make sure that you follow my instagram at drexel.smith and chad what's your instagram for them to check out developmental breakdown all right you guys make sure you check both of us out follow us and then um This is perfect because my Hawk fam, I asked them the question of, you know, they can ask me two questions to ask to you guys. And one of them is that, hey, how important is sequence? Is sequence really a thing? Because during practices, I work on them. But during games, it doesn't really fan out that way. Okay, so sequencing.
1: Now, there is... You're right. This is perfect segue because we talked about kind of hard, soft, how how to mix your pitches, what type of pitcher you are. And I think understanding sequencing is, it's unique to each individual because, you know, you can't say, okay, we want to get Mike Trout out this way. And here's how you get him. You throw this four pitch sequence and this unlocks how to strike out Mike Trout. And if you execute all four pitches in this sequence, then you did it and you're going to get him. It's like, no, it's, it's not like that. (laughs) (laughs) So so when you sequence, though, there is a right way to go about it. So the way to do it is, you know, you are parts of there, – there's three different types of pitchers. Now, That now what I mean is how, how your stuff plays at the plate. Now, your stuff either plays north and south, so you, you can work the top of the zone, bottom of the zone really well. Or you can work east and west, so you can work inside and outside really well. Or you can work back and forth. You can work a hitter back and forth, meaning you like to change speed. You can get them out front. You can speed them up and slow them down. So there's three different ways that pitchers can use their tools. Now, we're usually, as pitchers, we're we're good at two of those and kind of okay at three. Now, each pitcher needs to know, What are you best at? Are you best at east-west? Are you best at north-south? Are you best at back-and-forth? And And then you need to know what your other other part is good at. Are you good, if you're north-south pitcher, are you good at back-and-forth next, or are you good at east-and-west? So once you know what you're good at, and once you know what side of the plate you can hit consistently, then you can start sequencing pitches. So if I'm a north-south pitcher, but all my sequences are built east-west, I'm never going to feel comfortable and I'm never going to have an idea of what I'm doing because there's never a combo to build off the other. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and, and I really like that too because we're, we're diving into the fact that, like, hey, you have to first identify what kind of pitcher you are and what works best for you. Because, for example, me, I'm, I'm a 12-6 guy. I'm a 12 6 fastball and changeup guy. So I'm, uh, I'm north, north and south, right? That's up and down in the strike zone. Yeah. And then I'm more of a, a fastball. So I have my forcing and I don't have really any vertical movement, but I have very, I'm sorry, I have vertical movement, but I don't have very much horizontal movement. So for me, my best deal is to back and forth and north and south because I can work the fastball, the changeup, and my 12th tick. So that's my thing. But if we look at, you know, uh, what's um, – oh, I can't remember his name right now. <laughs> but he got a wicked two-seamer. So let's just say, for example, a player who has a wicked two-seamer, mm-hmm. you know, going into the righty hitter, and then they have a uh, – fastball and a cutter going the other way Mm -hmm. that means that they have great horizontal movement and they can work with that to where they can paint the corners and stuff but they don't have anything you know north and south so as a result they have to work at it in a different way Mm -hmm. because that's just how their best you know pitches work for them currently in that situation and that also could make it to where you they themselves and myself need to identify the fact that like hey hmm, you might want to work on at least one pitch that could do the vertical or the horizontal because then you at least have that in your arsenal every once in a while when you need it most sure you
1: yeah you're giving if if the hitter does not have to cover the entire zone then then he's going to feast on you so it If I'm a certain type of pitcher, and like you said, if I never, if I'm, if I consistently throw away to a right hander and he never has to worry about up or inside, he can completely eliminate that part of the plate, then you're eventually going to get barreled. Like there's no way around it. But if I've, if I've shown that I can throw inside, I can throw to the top, and I can throw away, the hitter can't sit on one part of the zone, so he has to cover the whole zone. So you yep. you have to be able to plug those holes, and, and I think I'm more along the lines of stick with your strengths, make your strengths stronger rather than try and make all your weaknesses better. I, I like to just have an idea I agree. of what your weakness is. Know what your weakness is, but when you're pitching, I'm always pitching to my strengths, and if it matches up where my strength is is the strength of the hitter say i'm really good at throwing the fastball low and away and i'm facing somebody who's good at hitting the fastball low in the way that doesn't mean that i'm going to go against my strength and throw fastballs in because i'm not good at it i'm going to take that as a challenge and say okay my execution is going to be better than yours And, and you know so that's that that would be the challenge um it's just knowing how to sequence i think sequencing is right and at the higher professional levels, the sequencing is more off the hitters. Obviously, pitchers got to know what pitches, the combos you can work. Always always work your combos in the bullpens. You should have you should have two or three different two-pitch combos that when you hit on that first pitch in a game, it's automatic that you're going to throw the other one because you've done it 100 times in the bullpen. You need to have those combos. Um, but at, in professional level, the higher you go, it, it's more about, Sequencing has to do with – it is hitter-related, meaning does this guy have a slow pole? What's his stance in the box? He's open and he dives and he's got a long swing. Okay, well, any type of sequencing is saying don't throw him anything that's going to speed up his bat. Stay hard in and attack. So my sequencing would be more related to hitter-specific. And it's really – I think guys get caught up in trying to read swings a lot. Don't get caught up on reading the swing first because you could be spending all your time trying to figure out where this guy's swing and what, where he's going to hit the ball. But the hitter yeah. is not even on time. Check and see if a guy's even on time and he's worth wasting your time trying to figure it out. Because if he's not on time <laughs> and he's always late, you're sitting there worried about, Oh, I got to get the pitch here. Or he's going to crush it. And it's like, well, he's not even on time. So no, he doesn't just get ahead of him and throw him strikes. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's not that complicated.
0: Yeah. And, and I think the other thing too is watch their adjustment too. Watch the hitter's adjustment because I I had a I I have my favorite strikeout in my life. Um, this guy, I was pitching against him, and he he hit off the other uh, pitchers really badly. And uh, I noticed every single time he hit it was when it was a two 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 one, uh, you know two o oh count right, but. When he had the two strikes on him, he did two things every single time. He choked up on the bat and he moved to the front of the plate. So I was like, "Oh, he's waiting for that, you know, that uh, curveball,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then and off speed. And if he's late, he's gonna foul off that bat- fastball." So then I was like, "Ooh, I know what to do <laughs> when I go against him." But that was when I was at shortstop and just paying attention to the game. Mm-hmm. And so that's another part of the mental side of the game. You know, you can be paying attention already and preparing yourself ahead. So when I went up the pitch against him, I got 2-1 uh, on him. And that it was a fastball outside. He didn't swing and I got the call. Then it was a curveball inside. He didn't uh, He didn't swing and it was a ball. And then I got a fastball inside, and he was really late. And then he moved closer to the plate, and he choked up, and I said, dude, he just missed a fastball inside when he was in the back of the box. He's really going to be behind now if I throw <laughs> it right back in that same spot. Mm-hmm. So I did, and it was a strikeout, and I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> so like you said, it, just understanding the situation, looking at the the what you have to do in that specific situation and sure i may i may have you know thought about the swing a little too much i would say but in the beginning of that that at bat i did not worry about his swing i was more focused on executing the pitch so but i knew from the adjustment that he made what to do next
1: yeah that's it you had you had you some intent behind implementing a plan that was thinking (laughs) we talk about difference in thinking and thoughts
0: yeah thinking and thought so just thinking about that ahead well
1: kind of like this one too like think about two different guys that are going to do a lift right so so you got two guys that are same exact size same height same weight they're going to go to the gym and they're going to do the same lift same weight same reps same sets everything one the first guy goes into it He's going to get the workout done. He doesn't want to do it. He gets all his reps done. He's mad. He's thinking about his girlfriend or what somebody said to him, one of his buddies, whatever they're doing. He's worried about changing his music. The other guy comes in and he he does the exact same lift as well. It takes on the same amount of time. But he puts focus into every single lift and how it's going to make him better for his job. Maybe it's pitching. Maybe it's explosive lift. Maybe it's a stabilization lift. Now, they both did the exact same workout, same size, took them the same amount of time. Which guy actually got better?
0: The guy with the mindset of focusing on each rep.
1: And we can't quantify. You know, we can't quantify. We can't put two of those types of guys side by side and see which one put the most work in. But it's obvious that because of the focus, because of the mental aspect of it, that that guy was applying things that's going to take him further In his workouts than the other guys simply by what he was thinking about does that make sense
0: yeah i like that i really like that analogy it's pretty good and then it also goes to uh enhance the importance of the mindset you know you can do the right thing but still not have the right mindset when you're doing it
1: you're always getting better you're always getting better if you're sitting on your butt playing video games guess what you're getting better at sitting on your butt playing video games. If you're, if you're eating a bag of hot Cheetos, <laughs> you're, you're there eating hot Cheetos, guess what? You're getting better at eating hot Cheetos. Like if you're sitting there. thinking,
0: Oh, about, I have never heard anyone say it like that. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> so if I'm thinking about pitching, if I'm thinking about something in a little bit more detailed way than the next person, then I'm getting better about whatever it is that I'm thinking about. So if you look at, a person's day, and you write out the main thing that they did or thought about each hour. Like you can tell exactly what a person's getting better at, what he's going to do, and, and so it's like, what are you spending the most of your time thinking about? What are you spending most time doing? It's just like we talk about that the analogy of eating and thinking. Like, are you sitting around eating candy bars and potato chips all day, thinking that you're going to get shredded? Like, it, it ain't going to happen. If I'm sitting around listening to stupid music, watching stupid TV and I'm expecting myself to be some type of brainiac and genius and be well-spoken, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, uh,
0: I totally agree. And then I I want to backtrack a little bit because one of the things that you said um, was grouping. Is there a difference between grouping and sequence?
1: As it, as it relates to what?
0: So you, you were talking about the hard, soft, 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 hard, mm-hmm. and then like the different, um what would be like what's the difference between that and sequence is that uh is that a like I'm trying to make sure that I understand clearly and that also like some of the people who are listening to this because when you said hard soft soft hard and then you were like hey you know hard soft hard is that is that a considered a sequence or is that a group because you said group earlier and it's stuck on my mind because i'm trying to make sure i understand what's the difference between grouping and sequencing
1: okay perfect i i did the grouping the biggest difference i think the easiest way that i can quantify and define it is sequencing you're basing your sequences off the count correct and much my, so my sequence is going to change whether i get ahead or fall behind it has to change because if it doesn't then i'm not really working a sequence so if i'm working a grouping then I have a predetermined four pitches I'm going to throw no matter what the count is. If I go, if I'm going to go hard, soft, soft, hard, and I go hard, see my hard is fastball away, and I miss, and I go, and I, now it's 1-0. It doesn't change my soft, soft, hard. I'm still going to stick with that. So now I'm still going to throw an off-speed. And if I go 2-0, well, guess what? I'm still going to stick with this grouping because it's teaching me how to, how to work my pitches rather than chase the count. Now, what happens is, and this is specific to those pitchers who are more creative, maybe they don't have the best stuff, maybe they like to pitch backwards and attack with their off-speed more, I'm going to give them a grouping because if if someone, if a pitcher like that is worried about trying to get back into the count, and they don't have their fastball command yet, I don't want them consistently throwing all off-speed to try and get back into the count, or worried about what pitches they have to throw when they're behind in the count to get back in. Like I want to alleviate any of the pressure of the count for them and say, look, I don't care what the count gets to. I don't care if you're ahead or behind because I want you to compete with your best stuff, working these combos. Because look, if you don't know what you're going to throw when you're, if it's going to be a header behind the hitter, doesn't know what you're going to throw when it's a header behind. And if you start hitting on all your pitches and start throwing counts, it's, you. You see those guys cruise. They'll cruise through innings. The hitters will get frustrated because it's behind in the count, and they're throwing changeups, or it's it's but you know they're behind in the
0: count. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the the uh, the you know the famous uh, three two count curveball. Like, why are you throwing a three two count curveball? It's the fastball. What are you doing? Uh, my favorite when people are like, it's three and one. Or three and zero, and you still throw a curveball or a changeup. You're like, really? <laughs> really. But I would
1: say on those on the groupings, I only do that for four pitches. So and I'll only do it for the first three batters. Like I'll do that with younger starters or maybe some spring training, where I'll say, Hey, these first three batters, this is what's gonna happen on the first four pitches. After those first four pitches, if they're still in the at-bat, then they should have a good idea of how to take it. You know what I mean? So yeah, after four pitches, they should know they, they're either way ahead or they're way behind or their bat's over, and they should have a good idea of what to pitch next. So I won't give them any more than four, and I won't give them any more than three batters because if it's been three batters and somebody – they got a couple guys on base, I don't want them thinking about, okay, well, i got to go hard, soft, soft, hard here <laughs> while there's runners on base. <laughs> you know? yeah. so it's just something to kind of give them a little bit of clarity of – don't worry about the – Leeway. You know, nobody's going to yell at you for not throwing strikes. I want you to be comfortable throwing all your pitches, no matter the count, no matter the situation, because I want you to be comfortable in growing. Because later in season, you're going to grow confidence, remembering back when you were throwing 2 0 changeups and getting guys out front. You can do that on purpose because you have confidence because you've been there. If you've never been there and then you're told to do that, it's kind of you're kind of out there in the mound like, uh, You know, you get get nervous. "Uh, I've never done that all season. It's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) So there's different guys in the way you build stuff. But I think the biggest reason would be when you group pitches, it doesn't have to do with the count. And when you sequence, you're sequencing whether off the count, whether you're ahead or behind or even. So –
0: what about what about the aspect of, you know, even though they're doing hard, soft, hard, soft, or soft, soft, soft hard, whatever the case may be of the grouping, do they change? Because that's specifically talking about, you know, fastball changeup, curve, whatever that may be for the pitches. But what about the location? Does the location still get affected by the count? Because, like, let's say, you know, we were going soft, soft, hard, and I threw a curveball in the dirt, and a changeup that was too far inside, now, the fastball, I really don't have any option. I got to put it in the middle – not middle, obviously not. Um, but, like, you know, mid-in, mid-out to be more in the zone. Does that does that still get played in, or do I still say, you know what, my best fastball pitch is fastball outside, and I'm still going to do that?
1: The uh, when So when you're grouping on those fastballs, I'll, I'll specifically tell, you know, the pitcher and the, the catcher that – that that has to be dictated from them. So when I tell them hard, soft, soft, hard, like I said, I don't tell them where to throw the hard because if they're facing somebody, if they're facing somebody and they know this hitter has been more susceptible to inside pitches than outside pitches, I'm not going to dictate for them that they throw a fastball to a certain spot. I'm going to hope. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to hope that they, they obviously see that if it's 2-0 and they got to throw a fastball, I'm going to hope that they're going to lean to more throw that fastball away rather than give up some pull-side 2-0 Jimmy when
0: they didn't need to. <laughs> so, so there is – that's
1: creative freedom because if I said – Yeah, hard, got it. So
0: hard, the, the location is still kind of uh, leeway. So it's not going to be dictated still on the count yeah. even though – so the grouping is still just the grouping. Yes. I like that. That, that, thank you for sharing that too, by the way, because that, that changes uh, the aspect of the game a little bit as far as being a starter, because I started being a starter recently. And for me, my first four games, I kid you not, it was like a routine. Like everyone on my team kind of like already knew that the first batter was going to be walked and then I was going to strike out the next three. Like, I don't know why, but every single game, four games in a row, I literally walked the first batter and I struck out the following three. Like It just, it was the weirdest thing. My coach already knew. He goes, hey, go get that walk and then, you know, get your three strike count. I'm like, God dang it, man. I hate this. And so I finally uh, decided one day, I was like, you know what? My goal is not to walk anyone today. I'm going to focus on hitting it into the strike zone, zone more and let them hit off of me and forced them to make some plays and it was the funniest thing ever because i didn't strike out the uh, i didn't uh strike out or walk the first batter the first batter hit a really slow little blooper grounder from a a 12-6 curve like literally just a not even like a high um bounce grounder it was kind of just a little blooper over the shortstop he made the play and everyone i kid you not was like yeah, way to go, Dragon. You broke it. You didn't do it. You didn't walk him. I was like, "Oh God, dude, this is horrible." Your whole team knows that you do that. Like, come on. <laughs> so it was. Uh, so that that's cool to see though, because then I can take that approach as far as the grouping. I can just focus on the first batter of just you know what. Don't even worry about the sequence. Just throw these best four pitches in the location that best serves you in that moment and do that I really like that it gives me a a better um, it it feels less stressful even just thinking about it now
1: oh it does doesn't it it's 100% because you have you have an idea no matter if you fall behind or not you're still confident in building pitches that you're going to use later in the game and you're getting a feel for them confidently rather than oh no I got I have to get this pitch over or something bad's going to happen
0: gotcha yeah, I like that.
1: Because there's a couple different well, ways um, to start the game, right? Like, I, you hear different – I think you talk about misconceptions, misconceptions of how to start a game. You need to go out go out and establish your fastball or, you know, all this type of stuff. Like, I think the best way to go about starting a game is closing out the first inning. Be, because what, how is a lineup built? A lineup is built to score in the first inning, period, or it wouldn't be built that way. Like if you're not planning yeah. on scoring in the first inning, then what are you doing? So I, I, as a starter, there's different types of starters. I like to tell, especially when I'm facing certain certain teams. I know their lineups built a certain way. Is I'm going to come out and I'm going to throw my best wipeout pitches in the first inning because I want to let the batters know that I'm not in here trying to establish my command and get settled in. No, I, I want to make it a point that this is my game. I'm setting the tempo. You want to stand in there, then I'm coming full bore at you. And when I get a chance, I'm going to throw my best wipeout pitch. Because then, if you do that the first inning, you get through that successfully. Now the second and third inning, when you've already established that you're going to be aggressive and that you are going to throw your best wipeout pitches, now you can start to establish your fastball command as the lineup starts getting down to the bottom of the order. And by the time it rolls around again, you've already thrown everything. And you already know what's working, what's not. You've already been to the high point of punching somebody out. And now you know as the lineup rolls around what you can do better to get those guys out the second time. So there's different ways, you know, as you start to, to kind of attack it. I, I don't like the passive go establish your fastball because to me that passes responsibility. If the pitcher gives us some hits while he's establishing his fastball, he can sit there and say, well – well coach out there told me to go out and establish my fastball so i threw more fastballs and got hit around but you know we're gonna be okay no that's not what we're saying (laughs) (laughs) i
0: i i you know i told my coach that in the past too my coach in the past he said i want you to start slow and then build your way up i said coach we got to start hot like i've i've been a cold starter because you've been telling me to but they've been hitting off the first inning and doing that kind of stuff. So we need to like, we need to change that. So then that's when I started to walk the first batter and then I was trying to get the following three. And then, you know, I finally figured out a way that worked best for me, which is, you know, thinking in in the first inning, I just don't want to walk anyone. And that's been helping me, you know, change the shift. So now I'm going to take that approach of the, you know, the first grouping or the first batter, I'm just going to focus on grouping and establish the grouping, and just do that. Are you a fan, though, of – so you said you're you're not necessarily a fan of, like, commanding a fastball, but what about people who, who go the strategic way of saying, oh, you know, the first inning, don't throw any curveballs. Just do fastballs and change up and change the location, high, low, side, side. Like, what are your thoughts on that, then? Like, would you say, dude, you have all your pitches, use them? I would say it it depends on the pitcher. So,
1: and it's not necessarily I'm against commanding the fastball. Obviously, I think, I think any, you know, any cornerstone of a pitcher or the foundation is being able to command the fastball, but I'm not going to go and throw so many fastballs in my first inning that I get hit and and that I show that I don't have my good fastball command. So, and, and if I'm, you're talking about saving a pitch for a second time through is that kind of what you hit on as well? As far as don't use your curveball first time through, we'll save that to the second time through. You know, I'm not a I'm not a fan of that as well. Um, because what if you save a pitch till the second time through? Let's say what if you don't even make it till the second time through because you didn't throw that pitch and you got hit around, or that you waited till the second time through just to come to find out that you don't have that pitch today and now you're stuck with the other pitches. <laughs> so I, it's just like I said in that first inning, yeah. I want to see what's working. And I want to see what's working while it's full tilt. Um, that way I can always throttle back. If, if I come out of the gates and I'm not full tilt with my pitches and I'm just kind of baby them, I still don't know where they're at. I still don't know where they're at when I need them. So I want to kind of, yeah. of pitches with intent early in the game to let the hitters know. It's like, Oh man, he's throwing that thing. He, he, there's conviction behind just breaking balls. So there's like, Oh, he's throwing a nasty one. That way when they come up again, I don't even have to throw it because I've already thrown it. I know it's there if I need it. They're already thinking (laughs) and I don't have to use it. So now I can work on my fastball. I can stick it in different spots, and I can make them look dumb while I sit there and shake off pitches just throwing fastballs. So there's a lot of ways you can do your stuff to know that it's going to be there rather than, okay, you need to save this secret weapon until you face him the second time because if you don't save it, he's going to crush you. And it's like, well – if you save it and it's not there, and you don't have that pitch, then you're standing out there with your thumb up your butt. Yeah, kind of like I don't know what I'm doing. So,
0: <laughs> it's, well, that also, like you said, it, it gives you the opportunity to adjust mm-hmm. because I, I noticed uh, one of my games. This is I, I'm glad that we touched this because in one of my games, I I noticed and I realized that my uh, my fastball, my fastball was starting to have a little bit of a cut that day. And I, I could not for the life of me figure out why. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to think about it anymore. I just know that I have to pick a different target to finish on the location that I want. Because before with my fastball, I would just pick a target about two inches to the left of my uh, catcher and it would land to the right. But that, that day it was doing the opposite movement. It was going um, like four inches to the left. It was more cutter. And so then, or some people might call it a slider, but it was cutter because it was faster pitching. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, you know what? I just need to adjust. Uh, my target is going to be a little bit more to the right, and then it's going to naturally move to the left. But had I not you know, done that and attacked the strike zone right away, maybe second, third inning, I wouldn't have been able to adjust that and made many uh, pitches would have been balls. Sure. So I can see how that worked out and that fans out even prior to seeing the second guy the second time, you know, the second way around. It doesn't doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because you made the adjustment while, you know, facing, you know, not as, you know, obviously they're still going to be competitive, but not as competitive as the top four that are in the lineup. Yeah. So I like that. I like that a lot. All right, man. We're gonna we're gonna end this on one last question from my hot community. And I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me, Shad. You want to go ahead and do y- your plug one more time, uh, where people can find you on social media. Uh,
1: you can find me on uh, developmental baseball. All right, now it's developmental breakdown. Um, you can find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Usually, I try and keep my stuff pretty funny. I try and keep it light. Make make people think.
0: <laughs> i like it I, I definitely found it really uh, interesting and, and it made me think so i appreciate you doing that because it definitely making me a better player so thank you uh, i really appreciate that oh you got it thanks for having me on it's been awesome all right you guys so this is going to be the last question and this question is actually from uh christopher christopher was asking you know how can i increase my velo what should i do and uh I think you and I both already agreed prior, but I, I'd love to get you, go ahead and have you share, you know, what What should uh, Christopher focus on to increase his in velo? Christopher, increase your velo!
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> increase in velo, yeah, you talked to the wrong guy, Christopher. No, you're to the right guy. I kind of hope they uh, head you in the right direction, help you out a little bit. I don't know anything about your delivery, Christopher, so I, I don't know personally, but I can give you a couple things that that I bet I'm willing to bet if you're chasing velocity and you want to throw harder, I got a couple things that I, that I, that I feel like you, you might be going through um, and see if I can talk through those with you. And the reason that I'm not necessarily against gaining velocity. Um, I'm not, I, I'm really not. I, I just, I don't like the way most guys go about it. That would be my, my thing because no matter how hard you throw, it does not absolve you from learning how to pitch. Learning how to pitch has nothing to do with how hard you throw it. It doesn't help you pitch. It doesn't help you control the count. The only thing it does, it speeds up the decision time that the hitter has to make because eventually you're going to face hitters that that can hit that velocity. There there is no velocity that a human can throw that another hitter can't hit, especially if you're behind in the count. (laughs) So, if you want to throw harder, I get it because velocity is a prerequisite for professional baseball. It is. There's, there's no way around that. So in order to throw hard, obviously, I think the number one thing is to make sure that you're conditioned and you're in shape. I, you know, being in shape and being in, in top physical form, I, to me, that's being strong. It, it doesn't necessarily come with lifting a certain amount of weight or doing certain lifts. You have to have this program. If you're not doing this program, you're not deadlifting. You're not throwing long toss and you're never going to reach your peak velocity. That's false. I've never touched a weighted ball in my life. I never did any of the Olympic lifts or any of that stuff. And I think my velocity was, was pretty high as far as for body, my body size. Um, But to me, it's more about how your delivery works with your timing. You know, it's, it's all about rhythm and timing to me. The biggest thing, you know, it's more of the mechanical flaw. It's more of a timing flaw. The mechanism is, for people to throw harder i believe that muscle muscle trumps rhythm and timing guys want to muscle out of it a lot and so i think i find a lot with with guys that in the middle of their delivery there's typically this blackout moment and it's usually after lift and like when they're when you're in your delivery to the plate before you get to landing most guys, they want to chase velo like, there's this blackout moment. Like, they don't really know what happens. The only thing they know is they landed, the ball came out, and they're looking up, hoping that it's going somewhere close to where they tried to throw it. And then when they do throw <laughs> it where they want to, they're like, oh, yeah, cool. And when they don't, that's more the norm. And they're like, ooh, well, at least I felt like I threw it harder because my arm – had a little tingle. <laughs> it's like, like that's, that's not doing, that's
0: not doing things right. <laughs> I mean, tell me oh if I'm wrong. Oh my God. The only, way, the only reason no. I say that. Is- I, I, like you said, you know, the, the biggest thing is Christopher, like realize this too, you know, naturally you're going to get stronger. You're going to get better. And I would say, you know, the biggest thing that you can do to increase your VLO is just take it one day at a time and give your hundred percent every single day. With your health, with your fitness, with your training, with your schooling, with your independency, with your faith, with everything that you do, you'd be surprised that, you know, having your faith, doing well in school, how that will translate to how well you do and perform on the field mm-hmm. and try, vice versa. You have to give your 100% to everything that you're doing and realize that not one way is going to work for you and everyone else. It's gonna be specifically for you, so you got to find what works best for you, and just keep on learning every single day, and then apply what works best for you, and then disregard what doesn't.
1: Oh yeah, I think the biggest tip for Velo unlocking, you know, untapped potential is, is helping helping guys figure out when they get on the gas. Uh, most guys get on the gas too early, so if you think about when you add effort in your delivery, like where, if I'm thinking about it, just consciously, where is your arm at when you start going, when you start grunting and throwing the ball to the plate? Most of the times that I see it, it's in a position where I could replace the ball with a spear. And it looks like guys were throwing a spear, you know, like a, they're chunking a javelin and it's not it. I mean, It's getting to your window. Now, the window is just waiting patiently. You know, I want to wait. And the window is right by my head. It's right by my ear. That's where I want to get on the gas. I don't want to get on the gas when my arm is back behind me. It looks like I'm throwing a spear. Because if I do that, yes, my front side, my glove's going to clear. Where people say, oh, he's leaking open or he's flying open. That's going to fly open because you're throwing a spear. You're trying to muscle up. That has to clear out of the way. Your head's going to come offline, so you're going to lose your posture. Your arm slot's going to try and climb over the top, and then you're going to grunt, and you're going to muscle the ball, and it's not going to be near as hard or fluid as it would be as if you kept your posture, waited for your window, and then you were fast through release. Most guys get fast to release and then try and muscle the ball. No, it's loose. And smooth, and I want to be aggressive through release, not to it. So that would be my biggest tip is is when guys pick up a ball. It's be smooth, be aggressive through release. Don't be aggressive to release. I'm not throwing a spear. I'm just throwing a little round ball. That's all I'm doing.
0: Yeah, and I I really like that too because that also goes to show that, you know, at the end of the day, you got to remember pitching isn't about – you know, there's so much um, aspect in in baseball when it comes to the mechanical side of pitching. We can dive into that and spend, you know, literally we could spend the next decade of our lives talking about mechanics, the proper one, the right one, the best one and so on and so forth. But that's not going to always be true and fit best for that person. But what is the goal, the end goal, like you said, is how fluent and smooth can you personally get to be able to get that ball to come out of your hand nice and smooth to where it maximized effort without being able to without losing the effort behind it i, I really like that that yeah, was uh oh what do you think guys that's some good answers out there. yeah yeah, I really hope that it helps him. And I hope that, uh, you know, other players and people who are listening, I hope that it helped them too. Uh, guys, I really do hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you again, Chad, for joining in. I really appreciate you taking the time to help us and dedicating your time to being able to share your thoughts, your your perspective. Uh, definitely got to learn from you myself. Uh, you know, now I, I, I am forever going to have that minute three minutes stuck in my head that I only play during a game. Um, <laughs> and when I'm on the mound, I only actually play for three minutes. Oh, I'm going to tell my coach, hey, coach, uh, I've been in for three minutes. I'm done. I've only been there <laughs> three minutes. Sorry. Oh, man, that was great. Uh, again, thank you, and God bless you guys. Remember to please consider to subscribe and join into our family. Uh, check us out on our different platforms and have a good one you guys hey Hawk family community and those of you who are new welcome i hope that you enjoy the podcast i'm so excited and my name is drexel smith and i am the proud founder of hawk baseball and i'm on the pursuit of the mlb as well and, and hawk baseball is dedicated to helping kids get into sports and build their future so t- I'm so excited to announce that this is actually a new segment that we're adding into our podcast, which is called the FCA Devotion of the Day. Because of our new partnership with FCA, which is Fellowship Christian Athletes, we'll be able to give you a daily devotion from their competitor Bible, which I highly recommend for you guys to get. Go ahead and go to the FCA website and be able to check them out. And not only that, but that will give you a tools and connection to the local event that FDA may be having near you because FDA is a the largest Christian athlete program in the world. I'm so proud to be a partner with them and I'm so excited to give you guys the daily devotion by Christian athletes, you know, professional coaches, athletes and individuals who are in the competitor world. So We're going to get into today's Bible verse of the day and devotion, which is going to be coming from Breakthrough, Dan Britton, which is going to be on January 1st. Here is the Bible verse of the day. But forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I am going to do, for I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do not see it. I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. And Dan Burton's message is, My family competes at everything. Football, basketball, lacrosse, even dinner as we inhale our food to finish first. We called my dad Captain Intensity because he did everything at 110%. I remember hearing him his uh, lacrosse days at the U.S. Naval Academy. And when he played against Jim Brown, football and lacrosse player at Syracuse and one of the greatest NFL running back of all time. My dad had a hit on Brown that changed the course of the game. It was a breakthrough play for my dad, who then started every game after that. Breakthrough is a great word used in sports. Any play that changes the course of the game is usually called a breakthrough play. A breakthrough game changes the course of a team season. Breakthrough in the spiritual realm is going from the ordinary to the extraordinary. We need to identify obstacles that keep us from spiritual breakthrough and ask God to remove them. Spiritual breakthrough will not happen if we see with human eyes. Make bad decisions, lean on the past, count on the practical, rely on what called touch or depend on the known. Spiritual breakthrough will happen when we serve others unconditionally. Allow our hearts to be open. See the spiritual realm. Experience tears of joy and collision. Rely on Christ alone. Make decisions of faith bathed in prayer. Serve Christ with reckless abundance and Have passionate, contagious faith. So here's the question that they have available and the extra reading that we could be doing. The question of the day is, have you ever experienced spiritual breakthrough in your life? The second question is, what keeps you from breakthrough? Third question is, what will be the result of spiritual breakthrough in your life? The extra reading that you could be doing is Daniel 6, 3 through 4, and Infant 1, 17 through 19. Take some time to do some of the reading and take a moment to ask yourself those three questions. As you take on this journey, you guys, please remember. To be truthful, thoughtful, compassionate, and forgive yourself and others as you take on this journey. As we continue to learn more about ourselves, and as we continue to grow our faith, it will be a struggle. And it will also be a great reward. So as I will do a prayer over us, and the prayer is, Father, forgive me. For calculating life without you, I need to go deeper and experience spiritual transformation. Please help me to have a spiritual breakthrough in my life. Thank you. Amen. Guys, I hope that you enjoyed this short little podcast. It is going to be a daily routine now, and then we will be posting it every single day for you guys to enjoy for yourself. Not only is it going to be the Bible verse of the day, but it'll be the devotion of the day. And moving forward, I I would love to go ahead and share with you my response as well. So, have you ever experienced spiritual breakthrough in your life? For me personally, I did. Um, when, When I went to APU was when I had a spiritual breakthrough. And the reason why is because when I... I was a Christian individual, but I didn't have a household or a community of people that were stronghold faith and fellow, fo- you know, follower of Christ. And so, going to APU, which is Azusa Pacific University, it surrounded me with people who were of faith, people who were diehard individuals, dedicated their lives completely to Christ, and I was surrounded by people who were curious people who were studying the biblical, and those who were just not sure. And being in that community and being surrounded by those people, it has completely changed my perspective. It has grown my ability to be able to ask questions, to learn, to grow my faith. And not only that, but it it has created a community of people who challenged me in my faith as well. So as a result, I was able to continue to grow my faith. And it was a spiritual breakthrough because ever since then, I had continued to grow my, my faith beyond just at the university. I started to grow my faith when I'm at home, growing my faith as I'm out and about. And now, you know, my... Life is completely dedicated to fulfilling who God has called me to be. And because of that, my life has changed completely. The second question is, what keeps you from breakthrough? I think for me personally, before having that breakthrough, was just not, not having curiosity, I would say. And the other thing too is... I just didn't have strong enough people surrounded around me to challenge me and to grow my faith. So that was really what prevented me from my spiritual breakthrough. I think the biggest thing is curiosity. Curiosity is is the deadly uh, determination of growth and learning. So I, I would say that that was my biggest thing that prevented me from breaking through. What will be the result of spiritual breakthrough in your life? Woo. Um, I would say right now, the biggest thing that I'm struggling with is. Uh, it would be like my spiritual breakthrough is complete. Reliability and faith as I jump into 2022. With all of the new activities that I'm doing. Um, You know, I'm now starting to be the head coach for high school. I am now starting youth ministry. I am now hiring people to be part of our program. And being able to rely on God to lead those people who are becoming a part of my program. And leading me to continue to grow the youth their faith, and then leading the baseball program to their faith and development in sports, life, and faith. So I think the the biggest uh, thing for me is the results. I think the that's a scary question for me because I, I've always been more focused on process. So I think uh, if I continue to focus more on the, the process of my faith and growth and the spiritual breakthrough. I'll be able to accomplish that results in the end, which for me is to have total, complete faith, belief, understanding, and not even understanding because I don't want to have my own understanding. I want to have God leading. So I think for me, it's actually just having full faith and relying on God 100%. That's it for me today, you guys. I hope that you have an amazing rest of your day. God bless you. Love you. And remember, I'm learning with you. I am not better than you. Let's continue to grow together as we take on this journey. Thank you, FCA, for sponsoring this part of the podcast.